Okay, let's start with our prayer as usual. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, each new day is an opportunity and an inv invitation from you to enter more fully into the life of your Son, who is the mystery that is the answer to the world's evil. Grant us by the grace of your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to the truth of him and so come to know you who live and reign as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> now, I'm as always tempted to start at the the duties of office never are far away, you know. As always, I'm tempted to start on day one of our class again, but I won't do that. Um, we'll try to pick up from where we were last time. And I think we were again saying that, um, you know, to really um, appreciate the um, liturgy and, and our faith as uh, the fathers in the faith understood it. Well, uh, well, how can I, I'm not phrasing it right. We have lost, this is the way to put it, uh, in the last few sessions anyway, you've heard me say that we have lost uh, what I called in some of our earlier handouts an eschatological sense. And, and simply put, that means we've lost a sense of the kingdom of God coming again in glory. And to put it in a real simple terms, we've lost a, a living sense that the early church certainly had of the second coming of Christ. Um, and the whole, the whole Jewish people knew God through this living expectation of God coming, God delivering his people, and God returning them from exile. The original exile was from the garden in paradise and then his chosen people after he called Abraham to create a people who would lead all of humanity back into communion with him. Paradise regained, reestablishing the uh, first Adam and Eve in their communion with God. He called Abraham, our father in faith, to be the spearhead of this new humanity. But because sin had entered the world and death had entered the world through our first parents, which later came to be known as original sin, because of the fallibility of our fallen nature, though Abraham was righteous, many of his descendants were not. And so the same lie and the same lack of trust in God that, that, that constituted the sin of our first parents was repeated over and over and over again. And, and, and so God continued to try, I mean, continued to try, that's not quite the right way to put it, but that God made covenant after covenant, you know, that beautiful Eucharistic we, prayer we have. You, you, you gave them covenant, I can't remember the exact words of it, but through your covenants, you taught them to hope for salvation. You know, I think it's Eucharistic prayer number four. It's a very beautiful, but you can see the um, providence of God in the history of the Israelites kind of trying to give rebirth to the human race again 
I'm going to mix metaphors here again, but um, there, it's as if the womb of the world was trying to rebirth. God was using the world and using the, trying to give birth to a new humanity in his son Israel through Abraham and all his promises and all the subsequent covenants. It's as if God was trying to rebirth the human race first by but primarily by calling Abraham and then creating a people a corporate person see Israel as you know was often talked about as a corporate person my son Israel my servant Israel and that meant all the people the assembly what we call now in the liturgy the assembly of those who are descendants of Abraham by faith not by blood necessarily that's why St. Paul can say the true descendants of Abraham lived by faith alone, meaning their trust in God has never been called into question. Their trust in God is like that of Abraham and like that of Adam and Eve before the fall, before the temptation. And God is trying to recreate. Righteousness means creating a people who are as faithful to me as I am faithful to them. Just a re-establishment of paradise on earth but that would be then the coming of the kingdom of God into time would be paradise regained we have paradise lost you know like the poem of Milton and then we have paradise regained and the whole history of the scriptures is the history the story of God's attempts and I use that word loosely because that's not the right way to say it when, when we phrase it that way, it's as if we are standing in judgment of God asking, why did it take them so long? Or why did you do that that way? And, and I was trying to explain to somebody last night after the class why that's just the, that way of even framing the issue is itself a function of our darkened intellect and weakened will that is a result of the, and, 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 and what you've been getting from me in this class and why you hear me stammering so often is because our natural normal way of even doing theology in, and our natural normal way of doing spirituality is from God's perspective and from the perspective of the resurrection and from the perspective of the early church almost completely backwards <laughs> and so I'm with you twice a month and you're with me twice a month you're here patiently listening to me to try to get it right in words because I can see it in my heart I know in my bones how the early church and how the Israelites experienced with great anticipation and fervent faith the coming of the kingdom of God in glory. They saw everything that happened to them as an intervention in history by God working out the restoration of fallen humanity through them for the entire world. Thank you, God. That was perfectly said. <laughs> now, whether we can, but staying, you see, staying in this space of expectant eschatological faith. Eschatological, again, means that God is using the, the, the events of history to bring about a transhistorical epiphany and re renewal of the entire world. So what the Jews expected was that through their covenants and through their journey, God himself would use them as his instrument of reappearing in the world. And there would be all of a sudden a redeemed humanity that would now again live 
in fidelity to God just like Adam and Eve lived in the garden. And the devout Jews, the Jews who were zealous, believed that God had given the Israelite people the law as the means of living in right relationship with God. And they also believed that as a critical mass, some of you, you know, you remember your physics and science, you know, with nuclear bombs, you know, you need a critical mass of plutonium or whatever it is to have the big explosion. The Jews believed something like that. They believed, and so did the early church, you see. This is what, this is the, what, we've, what we've lost entirely in our church. The coming of the kingdom of God has been reduced to me expecting and anticipating my own death. But no Catholic really believes Jesus is right around the corner. But the Jews did. They believed the Messiah was right around the corner. They believed that, that by, at, by following the law zealously and perfectly, if there were a critical number of faithful who did that, they would, they would meet, meet a divinely appointed quota and the kingdom of God would explode in its fullness. They would become a light unto the nations. Everybody would see how zealous they are for the law. And, and in a miracle, in an instant, the entire world would be drawn to the mount in Jerusalem, the beautiful apocalyptic passage in Isaiah 2. They shall all stream to the mountain of the Lord with choice foods and choice wines. You always have this sense of an eschatological banquet that the people feasting on unleavened bread and passing over, they're on a continual Passover in exile until such time as they follow God's instructions so faithfully, and a critical mass of them does that, that they all of a sudden burst forth as the light of the world, or in the later part of their history and their, their pilgrimage out of exile back into the garden, which God was leading them through all these covenants. They would fail, but he would give them a new covenant. He never, he never ceased trying to create and a people for himself that would be his instrument of recreation for the entire world and not just for humanity but for the cosmos itself. So the Jews saw themselves on a mission you see. They saw themselves as both a sign, this is where we get our term sacrament from, they saw themselves as both a sign of what was to come. A community living in faithful relationship with God forgiving each other and acting according to the law in all ways like they presumed Adam and Eve acted in the garden. They were trying to restore in their behavior, they were trying to be a model, an image and likeness of what it was like to be in right relationship with God, which is the, what the, word, the two words in scripture, justification and righteousness do not have the moral overtones that we have given them. They mean to be in faithful, trusting, unquestioning obedience to God, no matter what he asks, whether it's about details about food and diet, or whether it's details about living and treating your neighbor with kindness and respect. All the injunctions of the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, all of those were actually commandments of mercy compared to what the other cultures around them were doing because they wouldn't just have an eye for an eye, they'd have a family for an eye. You still see this in primitive religions and you see it to a certain extent in Islam, in certain versions of Islam like Wahhabis. They don't just, you, you offend them, you're gonna lose your whole family. 
They're coming after you and everybody associated with you. And that's, that's what the world was like. And that's where I've left off the last couple of, of, of weeks. But I'm, I'm, I'm reconstituting the whole story here just to, to try to, because I can't not do it. But, uh, so the whole world is engulfed in violence ever since the fall of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. The way of restoring peace in this world of darkness is to find a scapegoat to blame and then there's a kind of catharsis when when the when the tribes that have been offended find the offending tribe and kill it they feel like they've been delivered from the plague that has bothered them so I, I'm, I'm confusing stuff now so I don't want to go I'll get to that in a minute so there's this world of darkness and violence and murder and then there's God's chosen people who have been given an instruction booklet called the law to live in another way for the purpose of conquering the violence and the darkness and the murder that is in the world around them. Now they also did the Jews inherit many of the world's ways of establishing peace and their sacrificial system of sacrificing animals was a replacement for child sacrifice for the most part or human sacrifice but it had the same purpose the sacrificial system was to establish peace but peace with God so they thought that somehow the slaughtering of animals with the symbolic placing of sins on the animals would render them pure and righteous in God's sight. And what we will see today, I hope, if I ever get to it, is that though our Christian concept of sacrifice, including the sacrifice of the Mass, very often parallels and echoes that Jewish understanding of scapegoating sacrifice as a means of bringing peace to the community. It is a fundamental distortion of what the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Mass is actually meant to be in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's going to be a very tricky piece that I'm going to try to introduce you to today. But I keep coming back to this other thing because until we understand how Israel saw itself and how the early church saw itself in the tradition of Israel, See, the only difference between the early church and the Israelite sense of what they were about as a community is this. The Israelites thought that the law and their sacrificial system and they assembled in a critical mass of faithful, zealous believers like St. Paul wanted them all to be. That's why he was persecuting the Christians. He thought we are diminishing the sacred mass of zealous Jews. Mass, you know what I mean by mass, the, 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 the critical quota of faithful Jews we need in order to bring the Messiah into the world. In their later history, they realized that Yes, it would be the chosen people of Israel in their fidelity as a people that would, that would catalyze or activate the restoration of paradise and the coming of the kingdom of God and the, and the, and the, and the triumph of Israel over the nations and all the nations incorporated into Israel as the chosen people of God and the destruction of everybody who didn't want to be part of the people of Israel. They, they, in their later history, they believed that it would be the whole people of Israel, but that God would send a leader who would, who would 
who would activate this, the Messiah, the King. He would be the one who would destroy the enemies of Israel and usher in the kingdom of God. The whole point is, whether, whether with a Messiah or without a Messiah, the Israelites saw themselves on a historical mission to, to initiate and push the trigger for a transhistorical event that God himself would do in response to their faithful keeping of the law. And the only difference, I mean, it's the only difference, it's a huge difference, it's a night and day difference, but it's the only difference. The early Christians said, you are assembled around the wrong instrument. This is what's Paul's conversion. It's not the law and your fidelity to the law that is going to bring in the kingdom of God. It's your fidelity and communion and assembling around this person, Jesus. Initially in his historical person, so he calls 12, and you can see in the scriptures, Jesus is deliberately replacing the 12 tribes of Israel with his 12 apostles. Everything about Jesus' mission himself is to carry on the mission of Israel, but replacing the institutions of Israel with his own person. But he also knows, and this is a story that I've been telling you over the last couple weeks, he also knows when he comes on his mission as the Messiah, and this is what the Jews was so cognitively dissonant for them, he also knows the Jews expected someone to come whose advent into the world would be the catalyst for the coming of the kingdom of God. They expected that. But they expected someone who would not die and would be stronger than any other human being. And there's an ambivalence in the literature about whether or not what the, what the Messiah was. Was he a human person with divine qualities? Was he a divine person? Lots of different passages. Daniel 7 is a big one. Lots of different apocalyptic passages and tons of what we now call pseudopigraphus, uh, apocryphal, uh, the book of Enoch, for example, the book of Ezra. Those are all uh, quasi-canonical books that affirm and, and, and have great descriptive details about what the Jews expected the Messiah to be. And they were at a fervor pitch. This is why Israel, this is why the Romans were so concerned. The, the Jews were a boiling pot because they knew from their prophecies that as it got closer for the Messiah to come, we've talked about this in terms of Gregory of Nyssa and the fish and the rest of it, you remember? They expected that when, when God, using history as a gestation womb to give birth to the new humanity, they knew that as that event of the Messiah's appearance in the world and their appearance as the chosen people manifest to the whole world got closer, that the contractions of evil and the, and, and the forces of evil, of the evil angels, the Jews believed, I mean, they had a highly developed angelology on the demonic side of it because they believed, as we believe as Catholics, that there are good angels and there are bad angels, but the bad angels are in possession of history and of this world. And, and the Jews believed and the early Christians believed that as the appearance of the Messiah came closer, the powers of evil would intensify. And actually they would come against 
the power of God in Israel and in Israel's Messiah. But they believed the Messiah would slay these powers. But Jesus comes with the mission also of slaying these powers. But the way he does it is the way the early church fathers said he did it. He hid his divinity under his humanity and allowed the power of Satan to consume his humanity in death. With the absolute trust in his father that his father would vindicate him by raising him after three days. And in addition to that, Jesus also prophesied and believed and predicted that all of those who now assemble around me as the source of God's coming kingdom would also, as a means of God's kingdom coming in its fullness, also be persecuted and killed. And, he predicted, the way they will hate and persecute and murder you is going to be more gruesome than the way they did it to me. You know, that those cryptic passages in Mark, if the Father had not shortened the time, there would be nobody who would remain faithful. Pray! And in the Our Father, lead us not into temptation and put us not to the test. Thy kingdom come. So to bring us right up to speed with our class now, when the early church celebrated the Eucharist, they believed that mystically they were now assembled around the Messiah in this mystery of the Eucharist, much like but in perfect in perfection of the way in which the faithful Jews, their ancestors and their neighbors were assembled still around the law. They believed that the same thing would happen. Their assembly and their fidelity to the person of Jesus would bring about the kingdom of God. But they also believed and expected that like him, God would vindicate and bring his kingdom in after they were consumed by the powers of evil. So they prayed at the mass. They, they looked at the mass as their way of reminding, they called it the Eucharistic Memorial, and I think I've spoken a little bit about this, but they were saying in the Mass, they were trying, they were, the Mass for the early church was Jesus himself presenting himself together with all his faithful assembly to the Father in memorial, meaning placing it right in front of the Father's faith, face. You see, the Jews, the Jews believed that when they made the memorial, when they offered their sacrifices, when they kept the law, when they remembered Abraham, Isaac, and David to God, they believed he heard them. And that, and that if they prayed fervently enough and they reminded him, you know, what the Jews were really doing in their prayer of memorial, to which they added a lot of animal sacrifices, they were actually reminding God, just like, you know, you have that Jewish caricature of the Jewish mother, you know, who's always nagging you. And you have that, you know, remember that episode of Abraham, forgive me, Lord, but if, if you find 20 people, would you do it? And he says, yeah. And then he says, well, forgive me. How about 10? 
You know, the, the caricature of the bargaining Jew has a really profound element of truth in it because in their prayer, they, this is where Jesus comes up with the idea of knocking on the door until the darn guy hears you. And he tells us, do the same thing. Now that, because of our crazy way we do theology and because we've been dumbed down so much by the enlightenment, we look at perseverance in prayer and, and repeated petitionary prayer as somehow, you know, doesn't God know all that stuff? So why do we have to be, you know, you know those arguments that you hear? That's such nonsense from a Jewish standpoint. You have to, the Jew said to himself, you've got to get God's attention. I mean, that's how familiarly, if you look at the stories of the rabbis, they're always doing deals with God. And that's how he wants it. He wants it, you know, to have a real relationship with somebody doesn't mean that they've got all the power and you have none. It means that they take you seriously and you take them seriously. Anyway, I'm getting, I don't want to go too far afield with this and there's lots of stuff we'd have to talk about. But when they prayed and when they made their memorial sacrifices to God, they were saying to God, hey, you, you see, they had such a view of covenant that righteousness meant to them, there's two people in this covenant. It's a marriage. There's you, God, and there's us. Now, granted, you know, this is, I'm, I'm going to channel a faithful Jew here, but it goes something like this. Okay, Lord, I get it. I, I didn't do anything to get into this covenant, and I get that I don't deserve to be in this covenant. I, it's all grace. I, I, I grant you that, Lord. But because you made the agreement now, Lord, just to remind you, okay, I want to remind you of what you said to your servant David. Lord, remember, this is how they prayed. Remember, Lord, you promised Abraham that you would make his descendants as numerous as the sky, as the stars. How come we're getting persecuted? What's up with that? That's how they prayed. You pro re I want to remind you, Lord, the memorial was a literal act of remembrance to God where the priest and the people would come before the altar and say, Yahweh, we need to have a word with you. I want to read, now not for our sake, Lord, not for our sake. God, God, you know we are sinners. We don't deserve a darn thing from you. We're lucky to be Jews to begin with. This is how they would pray. But Lord, you promised. We're just holding you to your own. Is God does you know? Job was the ultimate crisis. Where are you? What about all these promises? See, so they went back and forth in exile. Is he ever going to come? And as they did that, their their view of how God was going to work all this out changed to the point where it evolved into the expectation of a Messiah who would be who would be the fulfillment of all those promises that he made. So they would literally hold these people in memorial before God. That's what it means to, you know, in the Eucharistic prayer that I say every day, it says, therefore, as we celebrate this memorial of his death. Now, in our dumbed-down theology, it's almost impossible to escape the feeling when you hear that word, a Protestant understanding of that, in this memorial, in this symbolic remembrance, do this in memory of me. These are all very diluted English translations of the Hebrew zikon. Zik, I think it's zikon. I'm, I don't know Hebrew, but it, but the in Greek anamnesis. You know the the it's the making of the memorial was a 
an eschatological effort on the people of Israel saying to God, how long, O Lord? And, and really calling God to task, saying, we are trying to do our best to be faithful to you, and we're not always faithful, but even in the law, you've given us these sacrifices to overcome our infidelity and to make atonement to you, and we've made them all, and we've done everything that you've asked us to do. Now you keep your part of the bargain, and don't do it for our sake. Do it for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember those people, don't you, Lord? And honestly, the memorial prayer of Israel, you see it all through the scriptures, it is reminding God, remember, see, remembering to remember in Israel was to remember something to another for the purpose of getting them to do something on your behalf. So if I said to you, I said to somebody the other day, when you see, remember me to Sister Polly. In other words, when somebody is remembered to another person, the point of asking to be remembered and the point of making a remembrance to someone of another person is for the purpose of touching the receiver's heart. Do you see that? And the only difference between the Israelite memorial and the Eucharistic memorial of the early Christians is that they were not remembering to God Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were doing that too. But they were remembering to God what his own son went through in order to bring about the kingdom of God. And more than that, they believed that they were presenting the son's dead and resurrected body to the Lord. See, what about him? For his sake, thy kingdom come and deliver us from the test. So the mass for the early Christians, the whole faith of the early Christians was centered around making the memorial to God as a community for the purpose of bringing about the final contraction that would usher in the kingdom of God. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, even though we understand, Lord, that it will probably be at the expense of our lives. We are one with you in your death because we believe and trust, just as you trusted in your heavenly Father, that we will be vindicated with all of those whose blood has been shed with the Lamb who has been slain. And so you have those apocalyptic visions in Revelations where the saints pray, when will it be? And the angel says, when the full amount of martyrs has been accumulated under the altar, that's when it will be. So the, Jew, the early church expected that Christ would come again through the offering of the Eucharistic memorial. So the Mass was primarily an eschatological act on the part of the early Christians, placing before God in remembrance the literal body, blood, soul, and divinity, resurrection, and death of his own son. It would be the, the image that I used when I first tried to explain this to people. If you have that sense, do, you see, this will change. I mean, the, the implications of this for our own devotion, our own understanding of what we're doing at the Mass, what's being done with us, actually. See, because it's Jesus himself presenting himself to the Father on behalf of all of us who he has assimilated into himself 
through communicating himself to us in this mystery. So he has joined us to him through his power, through his Holy Spirit, and he presents the whole kit and caboodle to the Father and says, do for the world what you did for me and, f and do for all these people who I have now attached to me as branches to vine. Do for them what you did for me. Vindicate them by coming again in glory. And we need, and so we pray. We we make this until you come again. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. But the the Christians believed that by doing the Eucharistic prayer, they would be able to bring about and hasten the coming of the kingdom of God. And that's still our faith, but it has been lost completely because this sense of what the Israelites were all about and what the memorial prayer was all about has been in large part lost. Okay, that's all introductions. <laughs> now, so what I want to, to talk a little bit about today is if that's true, it is true, I mean it is true. Um, what is the resurrection and what is the sacrifice of the Mass? Now, we have seen when we were talking about evil, that ever since Cain and Abel came, the normal natural way that nobody even thinks twice about for the most part, the normal natural way of maintaining peace among people, among nations, and even within our own religion, is to engage in sacrifice. So I started out last time trying to explain this by saying you put two children in the, that all human desire is imitative in its very nature. So I want what my role model wants. So I am taught to love certain things by virtue of those whom I admire. So you put, or somebody who has something I want. And I usually want that which people I admire want. So I, I acquire the habits and manners and even mannerisms of the people who form me. If you put two kids in a room, this is the one that helps get this sense going in me a little bit. You know, you put the first kid in the room with a thousand toys and he doesn't know, he has no, there's nobody else in there. so he generally picks up something at random or something that attracts him for God alone knows why. And then you bring the second kid into the room who also has a heart that desires because we are created with desire and desire is satisfied only by God but we also desire things in this world and we desire what other people have basically. So the kid comes into the room, he sees the kid, you know, there's a hundred other toys there, and which one does he want? He wants the one that the other kid's playing with, which is just fine, as long as there's another one of those toys around. But when two people get attached to the same object, and this is the plot of many novels where there's a, you know, two men fighting over the same woman or two people fighting over the same object. Then it becomes all of, after a while it doesn't even become about the object. It becomes about them hating each other. 
So, so, what, so the pattern is this. All of our hearts are restless. We desire to attach them to something that we think is going to give us peace. We do attach them to something that gives us peace, but other people want that same thing. So, so desire very quickly becomes rivalry. Rivalry very quickly becomes resentment. Resentment eventually becomes rage, and rage ultimately becomes murder or the sacrificing of something. And in groups of people, the way it normally works is that two people get mad at each other in class, for example, in grade school, a lot of you have taught grade school, um, but they become well, there's a, they become immediate friends when they find some third person to blame for their problems. So tension in human relationships, even between two people, tension, imitative desire that has no way of satisfying itself or feels like it's being threatened or in rivalry with something, that rage and resentment cannot be quelled until I find somebody to blame. When I find somebody to blame, like a lightning rod, I can discharge my anger. So President Obama tries to blame Romney, Romney tries to blame Obama, and nobody gets peace until I can get a number of people saying me, don't, don't, I, it feels like I get more peace when I can get people with me to say, isn't he a jerk? Yes. So we all feel happy about ourselves when we see how evil that other person is. And I'm just describing to you human nature, but in cultures, the same thing has happened. That the tension within cultures is always relieved when there's somebody that the entire culture can focus on as the person who is the cause of their problems. And all the sacrifices, especially the human sacrifice of ancient cultures, results from a culture trying to bring peace to itself by blaming and focusing on another and thinking that when they sacrifice that person, the gods, in response to that sacrifice, give them peace in the community when really those more psychological mechanisms are at work. But whether it's in ordinary human relationships or cultures, our normal way, and we're, it's so part of who we are that we don't even notice it, that we always, for the most part, until we've met Christ, we feel good about ourselves when we can project our discomfort onto another and view them as either the source of my problems, one of, the, one of the most common phrases you hear is, she made me mad. But she didn't really make me mad. If you look at it objectively, or if you look at it in the light, well, in the light of Christ, it, he says, good, she's your best friend. See, the wisdom of Jesus, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, it is so counterintuitive. Give, give the guy who persecutes you your cloak. When they come for your sister, give them your brother as well. I mean, the divesting and the fearlessness that Jesus calls us into, we've then transported that into a religious ideal that's good for priests and nuns, but not for normal people. And even for priests and nuns, we say, well, maybe if you're a saint, but not for us. This is normal community life. The, the, the teachings of Jesus are so counterintuitive and so countercultural and so absolutely nonsensical because they are basically nonviolent. 
They are turn the other cheek. They are the way evil is overcome is by you freely with great self-possession and great joy allowing yourself to be eaten up by it. Well, to an unredeemed intellect, to a person who's not been in the been formed in that way, to a person who is just a normal person in a demonic world and who has internalized blaming, scapegoating, and murder, whether verbally, mentally, or physically, as their natural normal way of relating, which is our normal way of relating until the mind of Christ has replaced our mind that we are born with through original sin and then our actual sins. See, I'm not blaming anybody here. I'm, what I'm saying is until you encounter Christ in his resurrected form, who comes back to his disciples as the one that they have betrayed and thrown under the bus, and as the one who has been killed by the evil one and his evil forces, and comes back not only as the risen Lord, but as the risen victim, and not only as the risen victim, but as the victim who doesn't hold it against him, and actually thanks him for it. Until that world implodes into my world, I don't even know I live in a world of unforgiveness till I see the one I've murdered come back saying, you murdered me, and I don't hold it against you. It's a revelation, it, and until that revelation occurs, blaming and scapegoating and murdering and attaining peace through catharsis of negativity is, it's just the natural, normal way of being human. When people say, well, she's only being human. She had a temper tantrum, she's only human. The real truth of that is, no, she's possessed by the devil. She just doesn't know it. We all are, <laughs> if not possessed. Our, our, our normal way of, it's the most natural thing in the world for the kid to walk in and say, I want what you have. You see what I'm saying? It's the most natural way in the world for two enemies to find another enemy that makes them have peace among themselves for a while. The problem comes when the when there's no other scapegoats to have, you see? So society has to have a scapegoat if it's to have peace, because otherwise it will tear itself apart. It'll be Lord of the Flies, where you just literally tear yourself apart. There has to be an outlet for the natural competitiveness that exists among people who desire imitatively in order to have any, any to, to be able to go on. Because apart from some sacrificial outlet, the wild beasts will, in fact, people who have studied this, compared human sacrifice to animal sacrifice, say that animals have a much more benevolent, built-in way of saying we can't kill each other anymore. They have, you know, they, the, the alpha dog recognizes the beta dog, and they stop at a certain point. Human beings, when they get in a rage, they don't stop at anything. When they are totally possessed by desire that is imitating something I can't have but you have, the hatred knows no end in them unless there's a way out. So the two ways out are either blaming, which is the normal satanic way out, the most natural way in the world until we know different, then there's the way of Jesus. But the way of Jesus is a relinquishment of myself 
to those who hate me. I don't defend myself. I don't justify myself. I trust that the Trinity itself will vindicate me. Jesus was silent before Pilate. I speak the truth, but in a demonic world with people who are looking for no other thing to do than blame, no matter what I say is not going to be right with them. They're going to hate me for what I say. They're going to hate me if I don't say anything. I'm going to be killed. I'm going, I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to be the lightning rod for the sins of the world. And I should expect that, and Jesus says I should actually delight in that. Well, you can see that it takes a lifetime of formation to not only believe it and internalize it, but to live in it and to surrender to it, and then a step beyond that to be joyful in it. That is what we call a saint. Again, it's not that the saint doesn't call out the world on the world's stuff. They certainly do. Mother Teresa did all the time. But they never expect that they're going to be victorious. They always expect that they're going to share the same fate as the one who showed them how to do it. But our faith is that it's through that, you see, doing that, that we will be vindicated. I know my Redeemer liveth. So it's life in death, not an avoidance of death. But we have a terror of death until the mind of Christ possesses us. So what's that got to do with the Mass? Okay, here's what it has to do with the Mass. We have internalized this peace through sacrifice into our lives, not just with our relationships with other people. We have also internalized this notion of peace with the slaying of someone and the destruction of someone, the Holocaust. The Jews did it with animal sacrifices that were consumed wholly. We do it when we scapegoat somebody entirely or we, 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 we disintegrate their personality or I write them off from my life completely and we do it in our religion and our theology has also done it to a large extent by that I mean at least one of the theory and this is I, I should say in a, in a kind of a preliminary way, way here this theory of atonement that I'm going to caricature here in a minute um, there is a way of understanding this in a way different from the way I'm going to articulate it right now. And I'm not going to articulate it at great length because I don't want to have to go to confession again, for one thing. And, um, and I don't want to make fun of, uh, I'm, not making, I'm not making fun of anything. Let, let me just try to say it in my own words because I've got it on the sheets for you here too. In fact, let, I'll tell you how we, we, we'll actually look at our sheets today and we'll read one quote from Pope Benedict because he's talking about what I want to talk to you about next. It's on the lesson that says lesson 18. Lesson 18 should actually be 17, and 17 should be 18. But I, I gave them both to you because you need, we need to read them together. And this will be our, our conversation for next week as well, next time we meet as well. This is a quote from Pope Benedict, and he's trying to, he, he's saying in a few words what I'm trying to say to you, and that is this. We have a view of the atonement, which is why Jesus died. And we have a view of the Mass that is very much like the Atonement. And if I had to put them in my own words, it would go something like this. 
Jesus died, Adam sinned infinitely. This is, a, this is a misinterpretation of Saint Anselm, but this is where it comes from. This was very prevalent in the Middle Ages. This is the theory of the Mass and the Atonement we have inherited, and this is the reason that Vatican II was, was called to get us away from this view of the Mass and this view of Jesus' death and the meaning of the Incarnation. But simply put, Jesus came to die for our sins because God was infinitely offended by the sin of Adam. His justice needed satisfied. He sent his son to be a holocaust just like the rams in the Old Testament. And when God saw that his son, who was infinitely perfect, was perfectly slaughtered and died in reparation for the infinite offense that Adam had given, God was pleased by that sacrifice and unleashed his mercy because his justice was satisfied. That's a caricature, but you, I think you recognize what I'm talking about, okay? That somehow, and actually most Catholic, or at least I'll speak for this Catholic, I believed that it was God who was behind it all. In other words, Jesus was ransoming us from God's anger by submitting himself to murder by God for the sake of placating God so that God could be merciful. And even as a third grader, I thought you'd have to be schizophrenic to believe that. But for the life of us, we have somehow managed to do spiritual and mental gymnastics to hold that somehow the murder of God by God for the satisfaction of God has held sway. I mean I just heard a version of this on EWTN not six months ago. And it is exactly the opposite of the meaning of the Incarnation. Now I could tell you that even when St. Anselm formulated a much more beautiful version of this, but still, in my view, unredeemable in itself. St. Anselm did not mean it as a theological theory. He meant it as a prayer to God, basically. But, but the question in the Middle Ages was, why did God become incarnate in Jesus? And the, and, and the Dominicans and others believed for the reason I just told you, to atone for our sins, to suffer and die, and to redeem us from the offense and the injustice that Adam had committed against God. And that was the lion's share of the Western Catholic Church. Though there were orders in the Latin Roman Catholic Church who said, that's crazy. It presumes a picture of God that is absolutely untrue, and it overlooks the fact as well. And a lot of these people, I, I think it was the Franciscans, I, can't, I don't, can't reconstruct the debate in my mind at this moment, but there were other orders that used to fight against each other. Duns Scotus versus, versus, some, versus Saint Anselm and his followers said no, even, and the question was this. Sister, here's my water. You have There was a whole group of saints and theologians who said, well, if that's the case, then had man not sinned, Jesus would not have come. And the atonement theorist said, that's right. The only reason Jesus came was for the atonement. And these other theologians said, no, that's crazy because then you're making 
God's initiative depend on man's misdeeds. It's as if God's mis man's misdeeds can provoke God. God man takes God prisoner in that sense. Jesus must have come more freely than that, not just as a rescue operation or a mop-up restoration. He must have come for a deeper pur pur purpose. And the Eastern Catholic Fathers said, well, that's right. Jesus is, is, is a savior to be sure, but he's more a savior as a healer than he is as a atoner. He came like the Good Samaritan to salve the wounds of fallen humanity. And he would have still come to reveal, to be with us in God's love had Adam never sinned. In fact, there, there, anyway, there was this debate going on in the Middle Ages. So there was a whole another view of the purpose of the incarnation and it's the one that I have been trying to purvey to you it's not so much God coming to redeem us if there was a ransom to be paid. That's another term that's used in connection with the atonement theory. The ransom, according to the early church fathers, if there was a ransom, and they didn't think Jesus came to do a ransom primarily, but if there was a ransom to be paid, it was paid to the evil one. In other words, we gave the evil one something to chew on but we gave it to him for the purpose of defeating him. So Jesus gave him himself to exhaust himself on Jesus so that there would be no more need to give ourselves over to, to evil with each other. Okay, I'm getting off the track, but let's look at Benedict here for a minute and that might be our way forward. And this is, now this is Pope Benedict even writing before he was Pope. To many, many Christians, and I take that to be most Roman Catholics, especially the ones educated that are our age, it looks as if the cross is to be understood as part of a mechanism of injured and restored right, in which the offended righteousness of God was propitiated again by, you know, by that means satisfied or pleased, by means of an infinite expiation, a precise balance between debit and credit, that Christian faith in the cross imagines a God whose unrelenting righteousness demanded a human sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own son. And then Benedict says, one turns away from such a view of atonement and righteousness whose sinister wrath makes the message of God's love virtually incredible. This picture is as false as it is widespread. So you had, this is not just Father Phil saying this, this is Pope Benedict himself saying, we have been laboring under a metaphor of what Jesus did and what the Mass is about that is a fundamental distortion of the meaning of Christ. And to put it in the language that I've been sharing with you for the last hour is, we have taken our normal way of imagining how peace is restored in the classroom by bullying, and we have applied it to Jesus and God. Saying the way God brings about peace in the world is the same way we bring about it in this world of murder. We find somebody good to hate and we hate them and it makes us feel good about ourselves. We get peace 
by destroying an innocent victim. That's how we do peace in this world. That's how all nations and even people who are not living according to Christ, that's how they get peace. They find somebody to blame and they blame them until they feel exonerated. We have taken that mindset which is unredeemed and have applied it theologically to the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection and then reapplied it to the Mass. So that even though Jesus did it again, there's still, even though Jesus took away the sins of the world by expiating completely and propitiating the Father's anger infinitely, there's still evil in the world. So we need to represent to him the same sacrifice so that he will be propitiated again and offer us mercy today. And so we continue to hold Jesus up to the Father as a scapegoat, hoping that the bloody suffering that was invicted and imposed on him by God the Father, if we're honest with ourselves, will somehow turn the Father's loving gaze towards us. And it's just, it's just absolutely crazy. But it, you see what appeals to it is that there's this feeling that we have in our fallen mindset, our murderous, competitive, rivalrous, resentful mindset, that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If there's an injustice done, something must be restored by paying the price. And Jesus paid the price. We're going to make him pay the price. God made him pay the price. And so now it balances everything out, you see. But Jesus came precisely to take us away from that way of thinking about how balancing things out. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, you don't have to balance things that way. Well, of course, the crazy atonement people then say, yeah, that's because Jesus did it for us. But no, he didn't do it for us in that sense any more than he wants to do it, have us do it that way for ourselves. He wants to offer us a way of being that is an escape from the whole scapegoating need that we have as fallen children of Adam and Eve. Okay, and I think some of these other quotes will help us grasp that. Look at the next one on the same sheet. Christ died for us to stop us from having people die for us. Scape now here's what he's, this author here is now saying, this is the way we normally operate. Scapegoats die for us, whether it's in the religious community or in the political arena or in the classroom with second, year, second graders. Scapegoats die for us because we make peace that way. We find somebody to blame. Christ became one of those scapegoats and died so that we could live without them. It's really hard to get this connection because you might be tempted at this point to think, yes, because he offered because he offered himself as a scapegoat to the Father. No. He was scapegoated not by the Father. He was scapegoated by the powers of evil in the world. And the most religious... He lived to deliver us from the need to blame others for anything. Jesus was put to death in our way by people who were looking to establish peace within the world and within Jerusalem by, by getting rid of this troublemaker. The Pharisees were only, no, were only doing... Caiaphas spoke the wisdom of the world. It's better for one person 
to be sacrificed than for all of us to be killed by the Romans. That is the wisdom of the world. It's not the wisdom of Jesus. But he allowed himself to be done in that way so that we would be empowered not to ever have to do that again with him in the Mass or with anybody else ever. Jesus was put to death in our way, but he went to death to end our way. He became a scapegoat for us, but Jesus is not our scapegoat. If you can understand that last sentence, that's the key. Jesus became a scapegoat for us and, and by us, but Jesus is not our scapegoat. We don't have to keep scapegoating Jesus in the Mass in order to gain God's favor or to feel good about ourselves as Catholics. The Mass is about something entirely different. Okay, and, and I'll finish these last two quotes even though I'm over time a little bit here. You don't mind, do you? Shall we do this? Okay, a fact of considerable in interest is why we now are almost instinctively able to detect that something is terribly wrong with the classical theory of atonement. We are able to detect it because it is exactly the reverse of the sense of Christ's death and resurrection, which from the beginning were perceived to have been a sacrifice only in the sense that they undid the whole world of sacrifices, putting them to an end and receiving forever our identity from the victim of our own violence. That may be a little much for, for any of us, but it's there nonetheless. And then the transition to the liturgy that we'll talk about a little more next time. At the heart of the liturgy, there is an antinomy, meaning a tension, between our cultic expression of Christianity and the abolishment of cult. The Christian liturgia, the liturgy, is not a cult if by this term we mean a sacred action, rite, or sacrifice performed in order to establish contact between the community and God, which is the way sacrifices are offered by those still consumed with violence. We celebrate a super-cultic reality in cultic form. Liturgy is not the religion of Christians, Liturgy is the religion of Christ perpetuated in Christians. But this is very difficult. I'm, I'm, it's difficult. I realize this is probably too much for all of us. But the Holy Spirit knows. <laughs> okay? And next time we'll talk more about uh, the resurrection. But the resurrection and the person of Jesus, but especially his vindication by the Father. Pope Benedict talks about the resurrected Jesus as being, as opening a space in the world of violence and scapegoating and blaming and, and getting even. Opening a space in that world, which is really his own person, where we can enter into his person and by association with the one who came to be scapegoated but never to scapegoat, by entering into him through the power of his resurrection, 
we can be turned into non-sacrificial animals. <laughs> we can be turned into persons who neither need to have sacrifices offered because we are with the one who allowed himself to be sacrificed, not as a sacrificial offering to God. Yeah, as a sacrificial offering to God, but not as the scapegoat of God, but as the means of ending the human race's need to scapegoat at all. But it's very difficult to describe, and you've been very patient with my efforts. And if you don't remember any of it, I won't blame you at all. We want to keep moving towards the land of no blaming, no, no needing to sacrifice or present Jesus as a sacrifice, but to enter in to his sacrifice does not mean the destruction of anything, strictly speaking. The greatest sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise. But because of this crazy atonement theory, the word sacrifice to us has become associated with pain and destruction and the relief of anxiety. And it's not that at all. In fact, it's the utterance of one who feels no anxiety because they've been delivered from the world of anxiety that sacrifices and scapegoats others in the way that we understand. Sacrifice as destruction and the leveling of pain upon somebody. I'll bring you a beautiful quote next time from Thomas Merton who talks about sacrifice as it's meant to be understood, an offering of praise. Amen. <laughs>